Hi, I'm James Brown. In case you missed it, this is the week that was at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. Go Bills. How long should the work week be? This is commentary from James Brown. My work week never seems to end. That's of my own making. The United Auto Workers don't want to live like that, and honestly, I can't blame them. In their negotiations this fall with Ford, Stellantis, and GM, the union demanded a 25% wage increase, baked-in wage growth, cost-of-living adjustments, and more. But the showstopper demand was a four-day work week without a wage cut. A few days back, they reached a deal, but they didn't get the work week cut. But it all made me wonder about what's possible. On one level, a 32-hour work week seemed crazy. But as I thought about it, maybe not. Because the work week has never been set in stone. According to the Economic History Association's timeline of the work week, many Americans worked 70 hours or more in the mid-1800s. And that number has dropped ever since. And when you dig a little more, you'll see that manufacturers in the early 1900s were the first to move to a 40-hour work week. Among them, strangely enough, was Ford Motor Company in 1926. In the depths of the Great Depression, 40-hour work weeks became American law. Work hours and workplaces didn't stop changing there. And COVID-19 sped up that evolution, as I'll discuss here in the weeks and months to come. I think in a few years, we'll look back and say, wow, we worked more than 32 hours on average a week? Let me know what you think at jamesbrowntv.substack.com or email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. You can also leave me a message at 585-484-0339. On that note, I'm James Brown, and as always, be well. The Power of the Third Party. This is commentary from James Brown. It's election day in most of America, so I asked ChatGTP to write me a 200-word script on third parties. This is what it came up with. It's called The Power of the Third Party. It starts in a living room. We see Jenny, a passionate young activist, preparing for a meeting. She's surrounded by posters and pamphlets promoting her third-party candidate. She glances at her phone, anxiously awaiting the arrival of her fellow volunteers. Jenny says, excitingly, Today is the day, guys. Let's make some noise. The doorbell rings, and Jenny rushes to answer it. Mike and Sarah enter carrying boxes of campaign material. Mike says, Are you ready to shake things up? Sarah says, Absolutely. We're not just supporting a candidate. We're fighting for change. Jenny's phone buzzes with a message from their candidate sparking a surge of determination in the room. We might be underdogs, Jenny says, but our message is strong. America needs to know more than ever that there's more than two choices. As they distribute flyers and engage in intense political conversations, the energy in the room builds to a crescendo. We end at City Hall at night. Jenny and her team join a crowd of passionate supporters holding signs Enchanting slogans, their voices rising above the city skyline. Fade out. It's not exactly Shakespeare, but it's amusing enough. Let me know what you think of this in the comments at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. You can also email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. 
You can also leave me a message at 585-484-0339. On that note, I'm James Brown, and as always, be well. I'm an optimist. This is commentary from James Brown. Yes, you heard me right. I'm an optimist. As strange as that sounds to my friends and family, and even myself at times. This is new. As a teenager, I watched the McLaughlin Group and ranted about media consolidation. As a college student, I protested the Iraq War and ranted about the environment. In my adult life, I loathed partisan politics and ranted about the money that makes it go. I still don't like any of those things. And there are plenty more like them around us now. But today, at 39, I find myself in an unfamiliar place. This lifelong Eeyore is an optimist. Even in these seemingly dark times, man is destructive, and man, we are resilient. The more I learn about our history as a people, as humans, the more I've come to bet on us. Through war, through famine, through pandemics and strange political and societal seasons, through wild weather and all it brings, I bet on us even though nothing is going back to the way it was. This faith stems back to a photo I saw in the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic a few years back of people during the 1919 pandemic masked at a baseball game. I thought about the century that followed and what those people would think of our time. And it reminded me of an old verse from Ecclesiastes. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. What do you think? Let me know in the comments at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. Email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. You can also leave me a message at 585-484-0339. On that note, I'm James Brown, and as always, be well. Building roads isn't sexy, but it's needed. This is commentary from James Brown. It's a perfect storm like so many others, it seems, these days. As President Joe Biden's giant infrastructure law floods money into giant construction projects around the country, fewer and fewer people are going into civil engineering. One of those roles needed to actually do the work. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says the country needs to add around 25,000 civil engineers a year just to keep up with retirements. This is being felt everywhere. The Seattle Times details this. Bids for construction projects in that state are down dramatically and up for entry-level engineers. The article claims that one undergrad got four engineering job offers a year before she graduated. I wish I got those. The chair of the University of Washington's civil engineering project, Bart Nielsen, says that students just aren't into the field. He says they want to do robots. Nothing against that, but... That's the image that they have of civil engineering at times. That it's not really thought of as something, let's call it sexy. All these things will likely lead to delays on major projects from sea to shining sea. And opportunities galore. So if you know a bright college-aged kid, let them know that building roads could take them in the country pretty far. Let me know what you think in the comments at jamesbrowntv.substack.com or email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. You could also leave me a message at 585-484-0339. On that note, I'm James Brown, and as always, be well. 
Late night shows are lost in the noise. This is commentary from James Blair. Comedian Taylor Tomlinson is taking over the post-late night show with Stephen Colbert's spot on CBS. The good news is she's not doing a late night talk show. She'll host a cheaper alternative, a game show called After Midnight. This seems like a savvy move because honestly, when was the last time you paid attention to a 12.30 a.m. talk show? For people my age, it's likely been forever. Maybe we're a fan of Conan O'Brien or Jimmy Fallon, but neither have had that job in a decade or more. It's a symptom of a larger late-night comedy problem. Those shows are a dying breed. An increasingly small group of people consume them in real time. Like the rest of media, they've become a funnel toward the internet to compete with video games, cute puppy videos, and podcasters like me. That's not to say nothing connects. Saturday Night Live breaks through here or there, but big moments like Conan O'Brien's departure from The Tonight Show or, or David Letterman admitting that he cheated on his wife after an extortion attempt or Jay Leno asking Hugh Grant, what the hell was he thinking? Or insert your favorite Jon Stewart moment here are increasingly rare. And I don't think they're coming back. The good news for Taylor is the old way isn't working. So trying something new might. What do you think of these shows? Do you watch them? Tell me in the comments at jamesbrowntv.substack.com or email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. You could also leave me a message at 585-484-0339. On that note, I'm James Brown, and as always, be well.